Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. Whenever and wherever you're listening, we just wanted to extend the warmest of welcomes. So kick back and relax as we continue through our sermon series. Northgate friends, it is always good to be with you. I love getting to see you. I love it when we get to hang out. It's just a gift to, to be a part of this church family, and if you are here and you are new, you need to know that this is a place of welcoming and belonging and new life and hope, and so I hope that you will, I hope that you'll come back, I hope that you'll continue to experience the good and beautiful things that are happening here. And I'm looking forward to, we're going we're gonna to dive in in just a moment here to continue on in the series that we've been going through. For a while now, we've been walking through the book of Matthew, but right now we have been looking at what are called the Beatitudes, which is the opening sort of stanzas of Jesus's longest recorded sermons called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the way that I understand what it means to live in the life of Jesus, a Sermon on the Mount is at the center of it, where Jesus unveils, this is this new way of being human that is now open to you, that's available to you, this new way that you can live that is good and beautiful and right and true. And at the center of what that life looks like is a Sermon on the Mount. And at the beginning of that sermon are these stanzas that Jesus gives that we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And one of the things that Jesus is doing in these opening words is he is challenging systems of belonging and understanding of what it means to belong. He's challenging systems of value that sort of undergird the way that people go about the way that they engage in the world. And he's saying, what if we've actually gotten it upside down? And what if there's actually a better, more beautiful way of living? In fact, I love that that next week, the way that we're sort of wrapping up our time in the Beatitudes is with this baptism service, because for those of you who are taking that step and are getting baptized, what you are doing is you're saying, like, I'm immersing myself into this life of God that says that there is this new way of belonging, and there is this way of understanding the values that undergird that doesn't make sense in other places. But as I have walked with Jesus, and as I've begun to immerse myself in the life of Jesus, I have found this new, more beautiful way. And so you're declaring that next week. I'm so proud of you, so grateful for those of you that are doing that. But last week, what Larry did is he skipped over this beatitude. Um, I think he forgot about it. I think he forgot that it was there. No. Uh, I actually asked him, I was like, could I talk about this one? Because this one has been like stirring in me for a bit. This one has been one that I keep coming back to it and I keep saying like, gosh, if we, if we could get this, if we could immerse ourselves in this, if this could be true of us right now in this moment, it feels like this one is such a big deal that it could have all of these ripple effects. It feels like this is incredibly needed right now. And it's this is, these are the words of Jesus that we're looking at today. It's in Matthew chapter five, verse nine. He says this, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Or the way that one scholar, Sarah Rudin, the way that she translates this passage, I love how she translates it. She translates it to say, happy are the makers of peace. We live in this cultural moment of extreme division right now, don't we? Of extreme fighting, of moving into our own tribes and our own camps, our own ways of seeing things and making anyone who doesn't hold on to our same framework, who doesn't share our same viewpoint, who doesn't share our same values, who doesn't read or watch our same news sources, we make them our enemy. And are there many other things right now that could be more significant to our current cultural moment than to be known as makers of peace? Blessed 
are the peacemakers. Now, to understand what Jesus is getting at here, we have to understand the way that he would have understood peace, that what he means by peace when he's saying that, because in a Hebraic framework that he's speaking out of, peace would have meant something different than the way that you and I often use it today. Like today, we might say something like, our kids are bickering with one another, and we're like, would you just be quiet for a moment so I could have some peace? And what we mean by that is like, we don't mean resolve your differences. We don't mean like work this stuff out. We mean just be quiet. And if that stuff is not at the surface, then there's peace that's here. But we know there's things that are bubbling beneath the surface. And as soon as we turn our backs, that stuff bubbles up to the surface, doesn't it? That's not actual peace. The peace that Jesus would talk about here comes from a Hebrew word. It's the word shalom. And shalom is the picture of peace that permeates the entire Hebrew scriptures as well as permeates into the New Testament as well. Shalom is most often translated as peace, but it means something more than what we often mean by it. Shalom has to do with a restoration of God's original intention and design. It's about restoring things to the way that they're meant to be. It's about returning to those early pages of Genesis and saying, like, what's underneath here? And how do we reclaim that? And how do we bring that back into being? And so shalom is God's dream for the world being put back the way it's supposed to be. Where nothing is broken, where nothing is missing, where everything is made whole And so this return has to do with all kinds of restorations. It has to do with a restoration of right relationship with God, with that being restored. It has to do with a restoration of right relationship within ourselves. That in the opening pages of Genesis, that they were naked and felt no shame. That meant that they were able to be fully who they were. They understood themselves well, living without shame, right relationship within ourselves. In the opening pages of Genesis, there's a right relationship with creation, and so creation is restored, and there's a right relationship between you and I, a right relationship with one another. It's where all people live whole lives. It's where all people live flourishing lives. So peacemaking then becomes the active work to restore shalom, or maybe we could say it this way, that peacemaking is the active work to ensure that all people flourish as a part of God's good creation and intention. Jesus says that you are blessed. Blessed are those who are doing the active work of ensuring that all people flourish as a part of God's good creation and intention. Which is why, by the way, it's active work. It's not just something that we can simply believe is good. We can't just simply be a people who believe all people are created with dignity and honor in God's sight. That's a good starting point. But the problem that happens for many of us with our beliefs is that they stay in our heads. They don't cost us anything. We don't don't have to do anything with them. Like, for instance, I believe wholeheartedly that it is better for me to eat fruit as a snack than it is to eat chips and candy as a snack but my actions say something completely different about it. 
So peacemaking has got to be something more than just like, I believe that these things should be true. I believe that people should, like, I believe that there should be this restoration of all things. I believe that all people should flourish. It's got to be more than that. But then what some of us do is we move to this other end of the extreme and we watch all of the stuff going around on around us. We watch all of the fighting. We watch all of the posts on Facebook. We watch all of the angry things that we replay on YouTube. We watch it even happening in our families and with our friends, we see all that happening. We decide, well, what I need to do is I need to stay out of it. Because if I'm not adding fuel to the fire, well, then I'm doing good work and we think I should just be sort of Switzerland and I'm not engaged in it at all. But that's actually not peacemaking because the work of shalom is an active work. It requires engagement. It doesn't happen in disengagement. It actually involves active work wherever there's conflict that we experience. And so whether that conflict is around the world or whether that conflict is in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, whether that conflict actually results in violent encounters or whether that conflict works itself out in ways that we can sometimes more easily write off because they aren't as obvious to my experience of the world. So things like maybe racial inequities and the conflict around that, around political entrenchment, around fighting about mask mandates and vaccine requirements, in whatever sort of ways we find ourselves pitted against one another and divided, creating conflict between groups of people, the way of peacemaking is never a way that says, well, I'll just stay out of it. As long as I'm not, as long as I'm not stoking that fire, I'm all good. That's not peacemaking. Peacemaking requires active work, active engagement. And perhaps... Perhaps this is why Jesus would say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. This is the only beatitude that has an identity claim associated with it. Maybe it's because for peacemakers, no one else will claim them. They don't, feel, they don't fit like real cleanly into either camp. They're for people more than they're for their specific position. They fight for the dignity of all. They aren't afraid to call out those who are dehumanizing others, especially if those who are dehumanizing others are from their own camp, that they're the ones who are doing it. And when they do that, those who are in their own camp will often disown them and make them feel like they don't fit there anymore. But in their calling out of the dehumanizing of others, they refuse to dehumanize humanize the people who they're calling out. And so in doing that, they end up feeling on the outside of the people who are with them. And so neither side will claim them. They feel homeless oftentimes in the larger cultural landscape. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt like, gosh, I don't know where I fit. It feels like you're either this or you're this. And, and like, where do I fit in all of this? Because in the binary places of belonging, it can be easy when you pursue the ways of Jesus and particularly the way of Jesus that calls us to be makers of peace, it can be easy to feel like, well, I don't fit in those spaces. And because you don't fit anywhere else, you don't find belonging anywhere else. And so Jesus reminds you, but God will claim you. That's where you find your belonging. And one of the things that that happens, a part of why we get sort of pushed down, don't fit anywhere, is because peacemaking tends to be one of those things that we vilify in the present moment, and then what we do is we see it as noble in hindsight. When we get enough time, we look back and we and we can celebrate it, but when it's happening around us, when it's happening in our time, in our place, we tend to have a natural tendency to vilify it. 
Take, for instance, the example of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We celebrated his life just a few weeks ago, and he was actively working to ensure all people would flourish as a part of God's good creation and intention. Dr. King was an active peacemaker. He was doing that work. And today, when we celebrate Dr. King, every, every group wants to claim him. Every group wants to show how Dr. King is with us, that, that we're continuing on in that same sort of legacy. People of all political persuasions, of all religious persuasions, will take quotes of his and post them, and, and our kids get a day off of school to remember him and commemorate him. And in fact, polls today, when polls are done today to see people's opinions of Dr. King, he regularly gets a 90% plus approval rating. In fact, oftentimes a 95% approval rating. Like, where else in America today do you have so much agreement on a thing? Like, nowhere else. So, so there seems to be this, like, this, this consensus amongst the significance of the life, work, and ministry of Dr. King. We honor him in the past. But see, the thing is that in his present, he wasn't as honored. The year that he was murdered... A Harris poll came out saying that there was a 75% disapproval rating of Dr. King and his ministry and his work. In 1964, a Gallup poll asked Americans, who are the three people who you have the least amount of respect for? And do you know who number two on that list was? In all of America, the least amount of respect, number two, is Dr. King. In 1956, a poll was done asking about people's opinions, or sorry, 1966, a poll was done asking about Americans' opinions of Dr. King and his work, and 50% of Americans said that he is hurting the civil rights movement. Half of Americans then. We see peacemakers as noble in the past and vilified in the present. Because in the present, they don't fit into our categories. We don't know what to do with them. And so it's easy to have a 95% approval rating when we're 50, 60 plus years removed from it. But when we're in the midst of it, we end up with the 75% disapproval rating. We end up being vilified. We end up being people who say like, oh, no, you're actually, like, you're not helping. And perhaps, perhaps, perhaps this is why Jesus says that peace makers will be called children of God because no one else will accept you. In fact, what peacemakers do is they look at the present moment and they say in our cultural moment, in our time, in our place, in what ways are we dividing? This is a part of why they get vilified because they step right into that muck. In what ways right now in our time and our place are we creating the binary categories of us and them? In what ways in our time, in our place, in our cultural moment, are we unable to see the dignity in others? In what ways in our time, in our place, in our moment, are we actually hurting the flourishing of others? Maybe even in what ways are we fighting against others flourishing. And in every generation, in every cultural moment, has to be paying attention to this and has to be asking these questions. But remember, if you do start asking these questions, what will begin to happen is as you engage in that active work of peacemaking in ways that actually matter for our present current moment, then you'll be vilified as Larry, PLD, showed us last week in the next beatitude that you'll end up being vilified. And chances are, chances are you won't know where you fit 
And you might feel like no groups will claim you, but Jesus says to you in that place, you are children of God. And so where, where is this conflict happening for us today? Where are those moments today that are calling for peacemakers? Here's, here's a few of them that seem to be happening. It seems to be happening in places of political identities. Could it be needed there? It seems to be happening around racial injustice. Do we need peacemakers there? It seems to be happening around the world in places of intractable conflict. In fact, a friend of mine, a friend of mine actually does peacemaking work around the world where he engages with groups of people who are at significant odds with one another and are at significant odds with one another for, for like very valid reasons. There are significant reasons they're in conflict. And sometimes these conflicts have been lasting for centuries, for longer than our country has even been a country, that this is this deep-seated, deep-rooted conflict that gets passed down from generation to generation. And, and uh, these are not like things you can just sort of like sweep under the rug And he likes to say that the work that he does, he does them in places of intractable conflict, which just simply means this. It means that it's places where the conflict has felt unmanageable, feels like it's uncontrollable, and in in some ways it feels like this conflict is unsolvable. And, And a few years ago, I got the chance to travel with him to one of those places where he does this peacemaking work to see the way that he would bring different groups of people together the way that he humanized and dignified the way he treated each person who normally were treating each other in dehumanizing ways and the way he was able to bring them together. And he brought them together, not by saying like, oh, everybody's got valid viewpoints and like it's not, he didn't do that at all, but he was able to have hard conversations with them because they trusted him, because he treated them in humanizing ways, because he was for them. He was for their flourishing. He wanted, he wanted them to flourish. And so they trusted him because of that. And he could bring together groups of people who had, who were dehumanizing each other. He could bring them together because of that. And so recently, Recently, I was talking with him about his work, and I was trying to understand, I was trying to understand what are the implications on this, not just internationally, but here at home. Because there are these spaces at home where it seems like we are trapped in seemingly intractable conflict, things that feel like unsolvable, where you create these binary categories of us and them. And so we have the political conflict and the racial conflict. And I asked him, like, how do we even move forward in this at home? Because it feels to me like everything is a dead end. It feels like everything is a fight. It feels like everyone is digging their heels in, and we have no ability to have difficult conversations with different groups of people. And it all feels so hard, and it all feels so daunting to me. And, and here's what he told me. Here's the response that he gave me. He said, Mike, the underpinning of it all of this work of peacemaking. He said, it's mutual flourishing. And here's what mutual flourishing is. He says that it's the idea that I can't have the life that I want for myself and for my children and for my neighbors unless I'm willing to work for that same kind of life for my neighbor, even if my neighbor is someone I'm at odds with. I have to recognize that my ability to flourish in my life to have the kind of life that I want for myself and for my kids, the kind of life that I believe God intended and created for me, that it is actually intimately tied into and it is actually dependent upon the ability for others to have that same kind of life, that I can't have it unless they can have it. 
Jesus would actually teach this in all kinds of different ways, but maybe the most well-known way that he talked about this and the most succinct way that he talked about it was when he said this phrase. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. Want for your neighbor, want for others what you want for yourself. The way that you want to be treated, the way that you want to be seen, the way that you want to be valued, the way that you want to be heard, the opportunities that you hope to have, the kind of life that you want for your children, the kind of opportunities that you want to be open to your children, want for others what you want for yourself. In fact, this kind of idea of this mutual dependency upon each other, that my flourishing is intimately tied into your flourishing, then begins pervading its way through the New Testament. The New Testament writers begin picking up on it in different kinds of ways. Like, for instance, the Apostle Paul would write it like this in Galatians 5, that he says, the entire law, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. You can make sense, you can make sense of all of this. You can make sense of what the religious texts are calling you to do when you do one thing, if you would actively want for them what you want for yourself. If you would actively pursue for them what you're pursuing for yourself. If you would actively work for other people, especially for those that you are at odds with, that they would flourish in the same way that you hope to flourish. In fact, then even later, James, the brother of John, would write about it this way, that he would write this. He says that if you really keep the royal law, he calls this the royal law found in scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. You're doing right. How do I know that what I'm pursuing is good and right and true? Here's how you know. It's when you're actively working so that others might flourish in the same way that you hope to flourish. I have this, I have this friend who's an artist. His name's Scott. And one of the things that Scott's helped me to do is he tells me, he says, Mike, um, you are, you're somebody who enjoys words. And when you read words, they like penetrate you and they sit with you and, and like it opens you up to see new realities and new possibilities and to be challenged in new and different ways. And he says, some of us, some of us words don't work in that same way as they do for you. Some of us need images to open us up. Some of us need images to see new possibilities and new ways. And so he creates these just really simple images that are meant to be sort of prayers. They're meant to ignite our imagination. They are meant to move us into contemplation and meditation. And he created this image as this, as this way of grabbing a hold of this idea that my flourishing is tied into your flourishing. They are interconnected. You can't separate them. The only way that I get the things that I'm hopeful for in my life and for my children's life is if I am also working for those things, for your life and for your children's life. My flourishing is bound up in your flourishing. Uh, the problem is not only do we not, not see ourselves bound up in that way in this highly individualistic culture, but that there are people that we actually actively don't want that for. In fact, I want to ask you if you do a little experiment with me. I want to ask you, would you picture, would you picture even like hold out your hand and pretend like you're holding a little Dixie cup you know those little Dixie cups, those little paper cups you get at like the water cooler? Would you like just pretend like you're holding it? And, and even do me a favor, would you close your eyes and I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that Dixie cup in your hand. I'm holding it there. 
Now, I want you to imagine that you are conjuring up in your mouth all kinds of saliva. Just imagine, just imagine, like, now what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you are spitting all of that saliva into that Dixie cup there. And just in your mind, in your mind, as you picture this Dixie cup that you're holding, that you have just spewed out the contents of your mouth into it, I want you to like, like look inside that Dixie cup and swirl it around a little bit. Like hold it like a fine wine, almost. And now here's what I want you to do is in your imagination, would you now take that Dixie cup and would you drink the contents that are in it? <laughs> would you open up your eyes for... Vote it here. Now, how many of you, like, that was gross, that you were like, just in my imagination, I'm not going to do that thing, right? It was just in your imagination. But this, this experiment comes from a, um, a line of study that's called disgustology. Did you know that there is a line of study called disgustology, studying disgust and how disgust affects us and what actually disgusts us? There are actually people who get PhDs in disgustology, there are disgustologists. Uh, I, I'm here this weekend. I brought my, my son with me and my nephew with me. They're juniors in high school, and we're going, like, we're looking at colleges while we're here. And so we spent some time yesterday and tomorrow looking at colleges. And I, I don't know what I would do if one of them came to me while we're on a campus tour, and they're like, you know what? You know what I would love to do with my life, Dad, is I would love to get a PhD in disgustology. Like, who does that? Why? Why do you do that? But there are people who do that, and I'm grateful for their work. And one of the things, one of the common findings in disgustology is this finding of what creates disgust in us has to do with whether that thing is seen as something that's inside or something that's outside, something that belongs to us or something that's outside of us. So back to the Dixie cup. Right now, you are constantly getting saliva in your mouth and you're re-swallowing it. All, all day long, like you're not conscious of it. I mean, you're going to be conscious of it now for like the rest of our time together here. But you're not normally conscious of it. You're just constantly like, like, take, like you know, re-drinking it. You are doing that all the time. But as soon as that same, that same liquid, that same stuff, that same substance, as soon as it moves outside of your body, it becomes something different and it generates disgust in us. Even though it's the same thing, it has moved from inside to outside. And what disgustologists have discovered is that not only is this true with substances like that, it's also true in the way that we see and interact with people. Like take this scenario, for instance. Imagine that you go to a restaurant. And the reason that you're going to this restaurant is because your daughter has gotten her first job as a waitress at this restaurant. It's her first night there. And like you want to be there to support her. So you get some friends and you, you all go to dinner there. You have to sit in her section and it's crowded. It's a busy night at the restaurant. It takes a little while. You get seated and everybody's a bit flustered. Your daughter comes over, takes a while for her to get to your table. She seems a bit flustered. She takes your drink orders hurriedly, your meal orders hurriedly, and you don't see her again for a while. By the time she finally makes it back to your table, it's taken a while, but she brings your food and your drinks, but they're all wrong. She's gotten your order wrong. Like, what do you do? Some of you, some of you might really gently be like, hey, sweetie, like, this, this isn't what I ordered. Could I get something different? Many of you would be like, oh, like, let's cut her some slack, right? Like, it's her first, we don't want to mess her up at all. And so you're going to eat the thing that you may even actually hate, but you're going to do it for your daughter. And then what you're going to do is when the bill comes, you are going to give her a good tip. I mean, she, she gave you terrible service. 
but you're gonna give her a good tip. Why are you gonna do that? Because she's inside your circle of belonging. Now, you go to that same restaurant, you go another time, and it's just as busy, and it takes just as long to get seated. You have a waitress that you don't know at all, you've never met before, she's incredibly flustered. It takes her a while to take your order. When she finally does, like you don't see her for a while, she finally comes and she brings your food, and she's also gotten your food and your drink orders wrong. What do you do there? At the very least, you find yourselves complaining amongst yourselves at the table. You're probably quickly jumping on Yelp to leave a one-star review. You are asking to speak to her manager, and when the bill finally comes around, you have asked for things to be removed from the bill, and then when it's time to tip her, you're like, oh, yeah, you are not getting something good. Why do you treat her differently? Because she's outside. She's not inside the circle of belonging. She is a them, not an us. The binaries of us and them will always create distrust. The binaries of us and them will always assume the worst about the them. The binaries of us and them will always cause us to look down on anyone who is a them. And wherever we perpetuate binaries of us and them, we will never be known as peacemakers we will actually we will actually be actively pushing against the work of peacemaking whenever there are binaries of us and them and luckily for us Jesus taught us how to move out of this way of engaging in the world he gave us the framework for how we move beyond the way of seeing the world as them and us here's what he tells us to do he says but i tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who are doing active harm to you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do you catch that last line there? It is another call of identity. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you'll be known. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That there is this intimate tie between the work that you do in loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. There's this intimate connection between what happens in you and to you when you live in that kind of way and the work of peacemaking. Luke, when he records these words of Jesus, he gives a slight variation on it that I think is helpful for our discussion. He says, but to you who are listening, I say this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. What begins to happen when you start loving your enemies, when you start doing good to those who hate you, when you start blessing those who curse you, when you start praying those who are mistreating you, what starts to happen is when you love them, they at some point stop being your enemies. At some point, you can't help but to see them differently. At some point, if you continue to pray for them and bless them and do good for them, at some point, regardless of what it does to them, it does something in you. And you can no longer see them as your enemies. Instead, they're somebody who you care about, somebody who you're invested in, somebody who you care about their flourishing and you care about what happens to them when you live with this sort of posture. There's this woman named Oshetta Moore, and, and she wrote this book earlier. Uh, it was last year that she wrote it. One of the best books, actually, that I've read in recent months. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's called Dear White Peacemakers. 
And what she does in this book is she unpacks the teachings of Jesus, particularly from the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, about what it might look like to engage in the way of Jesus as a peacemaker in the space of racial justice and equity. And here's how she comments on these words of Jesus here about loving your enemies. She says, this third way of approaching an enemy, someone who's just beyond my empathy, is a way that rejects passivity and it rejects violence. It requires courage to maintain my dignity while I call it out in somebody who I want to humiliate. Peace and the making of it transforms the way I think of enemies from monsters to fellow wounded humans who are trying to make their way in a dangerous world. Friends, if we're going to experience what Jesus says is the blessing of peacemaking, where we're called children of God, then it requires a completely different engagement in the way that we see others, particularly in the way that we see those who oppose us, the people who we oppose, the people who might try to hurt us and who we understandably have harsh and hard feelings towards. And so as we, as we wrap up our time together in the Beatitudes and our time today and just thinking a little bit about the saying of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers for they should be called children of God. Uh, what, what I want to do is I want to I ask you to do something with me that might be a little bit difficult for some of us. I want to ask you, first of all, to imagine, to picture, to think of who is a person or a group of people who you would consider an enemy, who's against you in some sort of way. Maybe it would be a group of people that there's people who hold a certain political identity. There's people who are doing certain kinds of work in the world and you have issues with the work that they're doing in the world. Maybe there's a specific person, somebody in your own family, somebody, a neighbor down the street that you've been having conflict with, somebody in your workplace. I wonder who for you, who is that person or who's that group of people? And here's what I'm going to ask you to do in a moment is I'm going to ask you if you would pray blessings over them. If you would pray for their life to flourish, if you would pray for them, the things that you want to be true in your life, if you would actually pray those things over them in their life. And and I know for some of you, you might not be in a place where you're able to do that because of the harm that they have done to you is too hard. You're not in a place where you're yet open to be able to even pray for them in that kind of way. And I totally get that. And I don't want to pressure you to do something that you're not in a place to do yet. And so maybe what you would do when we pray is to just simply ask God for an openness. God, would you open me up to want that at some point? Now, now as we get ready to pray that, I want to give you a bit of a word of caution. I was, I was preaching about loving your enemies a few years ago during a particularly contentious election season, which it feels like is every single election season now. And I led the church at the end of our time to pray for their political enemy, the person who you are not going to vote for in the ballot box. And I said to pray blessings over them and over their family. And, and a woman came after, up to me after the service, and she said, thank you so much for leading us in praying that. Can I tell you what I prayed? And I said, yeah. She said, I prayed that this, this particular candidate, I prayed that, they, that their life would be blessed outside of the White House. And I was like... Oh, no, 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 no. You did not understand the assignment. It does not work that way. You do not get to have the passive-aggressive prayer where I said the right words, but no, 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 no. 
So maybe for her, maybe for her, she was in a place where she couldn't actually genuinely pray for good for her enemy. And maybe what she needed to do is she needed to just simply say, God, help me to see, help me to see this person as a human being created in your image. Help me to see them with dignity. Help me to begin to want their flourishing. So maybe that's where you're at today and that's what you need to pray. Or maybe you're in a place today where you can begin praying for good for them and you can begin blessing them. And so here's what I ask you to do. Would you just take a moment? Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? Just between you and God, as specific as you are able, would you identify the person or a group of people who might be an enemy in some sort of way? And would you begin, if you are able, to pray for them blessings, to pray for them the things that you want in your own life? Would you pray that those things would be true for them in their lives? And if you're not able to do that, would you just simply say, God, would you help me to see them in a way that gives them dignity? Would you help me to not see them in dehumanizing ways? Would you soften my heart a bit towards them? And so would you pray just just a moment here? And this concludes this week's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed spending some time with us. And if you haven't already, like and subscribe to our YouTube and find us on Instagram at EngateCF. See you next week.